Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon. Welcome to the show. Weapons here. One of my writers in this case, Emma, writes me a script. Rose West, wife, mother, murderer. Uh, I don't know why I say that so lighthearted. A mum doing murder. <laughs> it's not brilliant, is it? Anyway, the format of the show is I've never read this before. Vaguely heard of Rose West. So this could be a bad one. Anyway, let's jump in. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Jen, who edits this wonderful production. And let's uh, let's get into it, shall we? Fun fact about me. Oh, okay. Let's go, Emma. My YouTube feed mainly consists of baby videos, gaming playthroughs, a selection of Simon's videos, and murder. <laughs> One of the most troubling videos I've watched in recent months was an infographic on the serial killer couple behind Britain's House of Horrors, Fred and Rose West. Ah, this is why I've heard of it. It's definitely ringing bells. Together, the two of them would murder nine women, but it was the murder of their daughter that eventually led to their downfall. Fred died before the case against him could go to trial, and Rose was left to face ten murder charges on her own. The details that emerged during her trial shocked the world and turned Rose West into one of the most notorious female serial killers in modern history. But what struck me about Rose West's story was that just how young she was when she committed her first murder. As I soon started learning more about Rose's life, it became clear that ever since she was a young girl, she'd been abused and controlled by older men, and it was the example they'd set that would result in her committing her first murder. Mm, I'm always like, yes, like... <laughs> This is complicated, right? Because it's like, yo, obviously, isn't it like rule number two of the casual criminalist? Don't f*** up your kids because you'll turn them into like psychos and murderers and stuff. But also, you can't entirely blame the parents. Like someone like writing it like this, I feel, would result in her committing her first murder. Places too much blame, even though I'm sure these are horrible people, away from the person who actually committed the murder. They bear the majority of the responsibility for the murder, no matter what their situation is. Because as I always say, there's plenty of people who grow up abused and in horrible situations who don't grow up to become murderers, aren't there? Anyway, let's see where this goes. So this is mostly Rose's story, and it should already be clear that her life wasn't exactly a fairy tale. Rarely is. Like, the number of casual criminalists where it begins with, they came from a great family, had a beautiful upbringing. <laughs> it was like a Disney movie. And then they turned to murder. No, it's always, it's always abuse and The Let's Family Legacy. Whenever serial killers are discussed, the question of nature or nurture always comes up. And in Rose's case, I'd say it was a definite case of nurture. But her family would disagree with me, of course. No one wants to think they'd raised a serial killer. I think it's probably a combination of both things. I don't, I, I don't think it's ever black and white or, you know, 100% one thing or another. It's like a, it's a combo. Rosemary Pauline Letts. I mean, maybe Emma will change my mind. Let's see. Rosemary Pauline Letts was born on November the 29th, 1953 in Norton, Devon to Bill and Daisy Letts. She was their fifth daughter and would later be followed by two younger brothers. She had an olive complexion, shiny dark hair, and large dark eyes. She was also reportedly sweet and quiet as a baby and didn't give her mother that much trouble. But later, her older sibling would say that there had always been something off about the, si about the sister they'd nicknamed Dozy Rosie. She liked to stare, unseeing at things, would rock herself 
herself to sleep, head banged like she was constantly listening to music, and when she was left alone in a pram, her constant rocking movements would move the pram over the floor if the brakes hadn't been put on. To be fair to Rose, this is an abnormal behavior for a baby. Most new parents would know that babies love to stare at ceiling fans and expose beams, and as they get older, babies rock themselves whenever they get excited. Mostly, babies who rock themselves do this because they find it soothing. But some babies do develop something called rhythmic movement disorder, and it's something that they grow out of later in life. In some cases, though, it's also an indication that your baby might have a neurological disorder like ADHD. But Daisy Letts didn't have Google back in 1953, and she was convinced that something had gone wrong with Rose while she'd been pregnant with her. I mean, that's not in- entirely impossible, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> You see, Daisy suffered from severe depression and anxiety and had received electroconvulsive therapy, aka shock therapy, while pregnant with Rose. Oh my god. <laughs> They'd still do some electroconvulsive therapy, though, don't they? I mean, there's still some benefit to that. It's not like some crazy thing that they just do in, did in movies. Like, um, not that they just did in movies, that they just do in movies nowadays. That's a real thing, right? Like lobotomies. Obviously, not something we do today. Like, that was like quack science from the past. But I think the electroconvulsive thing's still a thing. But doing it while you're pregnant, that seems a bit much, doesn't it? Although I'm sure if they were doing. No, I'm not sure. I feel like if they were doing it today, they'd be like, Are you pregnant? And you'd be like, Yes. They'd be like, Okay, well, this is safe, or it's not safe, so we won't do it. Later, she argued that the shock therapy had caused Rose to sustain prenatal development issues and blamed it for how her daughter turned out. After all, the fact that Rose turned out to be a sadistic serial killer wasn't her fault. All her other children turned out to be fine. To be fair, any developmental issues that Rose had sustained during her childhood weren't her mother's fault. Instead, in my humble opinion, all the blame can be laid squarely at the feet of Bill Letts. William Andrew Bill Letts was a sadist and a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic who wanted his wife to keep their home spotless. If she didn't, he beat her and all the children. And as a result, Daisy cleaned as if her life depended on it. But Bill enjoyed inflicting pain on his wife and children, and he'd often toss the children's food on the floor and pour boiling water over his wife to teach her a lesson. Years later, one of the neighbors would tell journalist Howard Soans that the family had a terrible life with Bill. He was a very violent and cruel man. He would beat his wife all the time and make a mess in the house so that Daisy and the children would have to clear it up. Daisy's mental health suffered because of the constant abuse, which had resulted in her developing depression and anxiety, and later she had added OCD to the list, believing that if the moon was full, she had to be extra careful because that is when Bill was at his worst. He's <laughs> like a werewolf or some The less children weren't allowed to play outside or have friends over because a paranoid Bill would be convinced that they'd start talking about his family if they saw his children. Not that it stopped the neighbors from hearing the shouts and screams coming from the Let's house and calling the police, but nothing ever changed. The police would arrive, the older girls would be sent to a children's home for a while, and Bill would continue to assault the remainder of his family. Except for Rose. In her book, Rose West, The Making of a Monster, criminologist Jane Carter Woodrow would explain that Rose seemed to have learned at a young age how to amuse and charm her violent father to survive living with him, and she soon became his favorite. Her older brother, Andrew, explained that Rose was very clever as a young child in learning how to manipulate Dad. He felt sorry for her and would let her off. Sounds like she's... Like, <laughs> I don't want to necessarily asso- associate just manipulation with serial killers, but it does seem like it would fit together, right? Like that masterful manipulation stuff. When she turned 11, Bill Letts became very protective of his beautiful, dark-haired and youngest daughter. But Jane Woodrow theorizes there was a much, much darker issue at play here. Bill had started grooming Rose. By the time she was 11, she'd learned how to please him sexually, and by the time she was 14, she'd taken her mother's place in her father's bed. In return, she wasn't beaten like the rest of her siblings and lived a relatively happy life under the protection of her mentally ill father. 
is there any evidence for that or are you just theorizing because i'm more comfortable with the idea that this is your crazy theory <laughs> rather than reality jane it also meant that by the time Rose was 13, she was fully aware of the effect that she could have on a certain kind of man, and she was eager to experiment with her sexuality. According to her siblings, Rose would take baths with the door open, walk around the house naked, and parade in front of her father, enticing him even further. Her young brother Gordon would explain that when he was seven, a naked Rose would climb into bed with him late at night and play with him. She'd do the same with Graham, who was nine at the time, and would go so far as to have full-on sex with Gordon when he was 12. Wait, is this just her theory? Wait, who said this? Yeah, no, the younger brother says this. Oh my god, that's so f***ed up. Jesus. The two younger boys saw their older sister as their protector and didn't find this kind of behavior odd. Yeah, because they've got no reference point. They're kids. They're children. They're going to grow up and be like, oh, holy f***, bro. Um, but now they're nine. They don't know anything. They simply saw it as another form of sisterly affection. Uh, when their mother eventually found a job, she asked 14-year-old Rose to mind her younger brothers after school, but Rose preferred to slip out and hang out in the, with the neighborhood boys, luring them back to the house and allowing them to touch her, broadening her sexual horizons. By the time she was 15, Rose had dropped out of school and moved out of her parents' house into a tiny one-room flat in Cheltenham. During the day, she would work as a waitress in a cafe, and at night, she'd walk the streets and chat up much older men, often taking them back to her apartment. When her new hobby got her landlord into trouble for soliciting a minor and brought her to the police's attention, Rose was forced to move back in with her parents, and once again, she was under her father's control. Bill Letts, made up for lost time, controlled Rose's every move and made sure that she knew he wasn't planning on letting her go. Not long after, Rose would meet Fred West. A poor man's Prince Charming You can't explain Rose's later crimes without explaining the kind of man that Fred West was. Frederick, I'm going to guess he's a bad dude because she comes from this terrible background of abuse and neglect and all of this stuff and that just like parent relations leads to children relationships and i think that's exactly what we're going to see here also this is a true guy podcast and that's what happens here frederick walter stephen west was born on the 29th of september 1941 in much markle Hertfordshire to Walter West and his wife Daisy. Never heard of much, Mark. It must be small. Later, he would be followed by five siblings, and initially the whole family had to share a two-bedroom cottage. The Wests were farm workers, and Fred grew up alongside his family, collecting the harvest, tending to the animals, and trapping rabbits when food was scarce. A neighbor's daughter would later explain that he'd been a quiet but happy little boy and wasn't much different from the other boys his age, despite being scrawnier than most. The Wests were a close-knit family, and it was clear to everybody that Walter and Daisy doted on their kids. John Cox, one of their neighbors, would tell Howard Sounds that they thought a lot of the children. If ever they went off, they took the kiddies with them on their bicycles. Walter's sister, Edna Hill, would also echo this and later say that Daisy West was accompanied by her children wherever she went. But Fred was her favorite. Fred West came with Daisy, even in front of Walter. She thought the world of Fred. Fred didn't do well at school. His classmates remember that he looked dirty and unkempt in comparison to his neatly turned out brothers and sisters and was often in trouble because he didn't pay attention in class. Anne Coburn, one of Fred's old schoolmates, reported that whenever Fred had received a beating at school, Daisy West would march to the school and confront whoever had dared to lay a finger on a precious little boy. Her actions only entertained Fred's classmates, though, and he was often mocked and bullied for being a mama's boy. So far, it sounds like he had a decent enough childhood, right? Yeah, it seems very normal. Like, this seems like... I don't know, someone growing up in the past, <laughs> to be honest. But, like, 
relatively normal. Well, you'd be wrong. Just like Rose, Fred had also been sexualized from a young age, from the time he was a baby. Daisy West would insist that her favorite son should sleep in her bed, and when he got older, she would touch and stroke the young boy. By the time he hit puberty, she would have sex with him, and as far as Fred was concerned, this was normal behavior. Yeah, again, because he's a child. That's lit. It's like, is this normal, mum? Yes, dear. This is normal. It's f***ed up. Walter West did his best to educate his son about sex, and he would take young Fred along when he assaulted young girls in the open field surrounding their house. What the f***? He'd also teach his son the basics of bestiality, and reportedly told him that he could do whatever he wished as long as he didn't get caught. But Walter West didn't stop at having sex with local farm girls and the animals he was supposed to be looking after. He also saw it as his right to break his girls in. And because Fred grew up seeing how his father openly molested his younger sisters, he would firmly believe that it was completely natural to molest your children and that, quote, everybody did it. Wait, I get it when you're a kid. And you're like, you know, these guys, it's like, they don't have a reference point. They're just innocent children. And then it's like, but at some point you'll be like, oh, wait, like you get a different reference point. This, this, this is really f***ed up. Jesus. <laughs> Fred dropped out of school when he was 14 and was mostly illiterate. But he had shown an aptitude for practical work and was skilled at drawing. For the next six years, Fred would work alongside his father and younger brother John, earning a meager income as a farmhand. One of the men who'd known the young Fred would later say that it thought at the time that dim old Fred would be walking behind a cow with a stick for the rest of his life. And maybe he would have, but as he got older, Fred became a ladies' man. On weekends, Fred and his younger brother John would go into Ledbury and party it up with the other teens from the area. He learned how to clean up properly and would start practicing his natural charm on the girls he met. He was bad at it at first and got into a lot of fights because he tried to steal girls away from their boyfriends, but years later, he would have perfected it to such an extent that Rose would say he could charm the birds off the trees. In November 1958, the 17-year-old Fred was involved in a motorcycle accident. He'd been badly hurt, one of his legs had been crushed, and he was in a coma for a week. The doctors had to put a metal brace on his leg, and Fred would walk with a noticeable limp for the rest of his life. And just like Daisy Letts blaming her electroshock therapy for Rose's actions, Daisy West would insist that it was this motorcycle accident that had turned her sweet Fred into a monster. What, did he bang his head? I mean, it's entirely possible, but it just seems he had his legs crushed. That's not going to turn you into a monster. I can totally... People do have, like, accidents, though. It's one of those things that, you know... Not that I... Not like I worry about, but I think about. It's like, when you're in a car accident, it changes your personality and you become, like, stupid or mean or, like, evil. Like, that's f***ed up. And it happens to people. As he got older, Fred became frustrated by his life on the farm. His father was domineering, and Fred was itching to get out from under his control. Since he'd broken his leg, he couldn't keep up with the girls when they went dancing anymore, and the other guys would tease him for it, resulting in him getting into frequent fights. He also started pickpocketing jewelry with his cousin and got into trouble with the police for it. But the worst of his offenses would come to light in June 1961, when the police arrested 20-year-old Fred West having sex with a 13-year-old girl. Fred didn't understand why having sex with the 13-year-old girl was wrong, and he had told the police, well, doesn't everyone do it? Uh, Fred, you're 20 I get that you're dim, but and I get that it's the past, but it's like, bro, <laughs> someone at some point is going to be like, you know, that's illegal, right, Fred? You know what the law is, right, Fred? No matter how dim you are, you know that's a crime. 
Surprisingly enough, Daisy West was disgusted by her son's behavior, and she kicked him out of the house. Fred quit his job and moved in with his aunt and uncle until his hearing, which took place in November 1961. Until then, he worked as a builder in town and got into trouble again when one of his girlfriends claimed that it forced himself on her. On the 9th of November 1961, Fred West appeared in court, but the case against him was dismissed when the 13-year-old refused to give evidence against him. After he was acquitted, Fred moved back in with his parents and continued working manual jobs in town. Um, why... <laughs> He had sex, and let's just call that. Um, we can't use the R word because my videos keep getting demonetized when I do. But you know what I mean. Um, w- why does she need to testify? Like, don't they have a statement from her originally? I feel like he should go to prison, definitely for a long time. Why? Do he and he gets acquitted just because she won't testify. Let's find. Can we not do some other evidence or something, please? In September 1962, one of Fred's ex-girlfriends moved back into town. She was a Scottish girl called Catherine Costello, but by, but went by the name Rena. She was 18 at the time, and she and the 21-year-old Fred quickly got back together. Rena had already had a hard life herself. She came from a poor family and had been arrested for petty theft when she was just 11. She had been working as a sex worker in Glasgow from the age of 16 and had just spent 17 months in a Borstal school, a kind of youth detention center. Yeah, we used to call them Borstals when I was a kid. I thought it became like non-PC or something. It was definitely my parents were joke. we'll send you to the Borstal. And I was like, no, no. I mean, I knew it was a joke. They did actually threaten to send me to a Borstal. But like, it's like Young Persons Offenders Institute or whatever, where you send the naughty kids. And was pregnant with a mixed-race baby when the time she moved back to Ledbury. Uh-oh. <laughs> because what's his face? Um, Fred is, I'm assuming, white. And so she... <laughs> Uh-oh. Fred, ma- uh, Fred married the pregnant Rena on the 17th of November 1962, and the couple moved to Coatbridge in Scotland, where Fred found work driving an ice cream van. Rena's eldest daughter, Charmaine Carol May West, was born there on the 22nd of March 1963. Because the baby was obviously part Asian, the couple told Fred's parents that she'd been adopted. A year later, the couple went on to have another daughter called Anne Anna Marie Kathleen Daisy West, who also was born in July 1964. Um, Fred's just like, oh, okay. Rena's life with Fred was hell. He would demand sex from Rena at all hours of the day, whether she was willing or not. According to Rena's family, she would often be bruised from the beatings she had suffered, as well as the rough sex that Fred demanded of her. Allegedly, it also urged her to start walking the streets again, and would later proudly explain that he was her pimp. Um, it's pretty f***ed up. This episode is really f***ed up. Jesus. According to a friend of Rena's, John McLaughlin, Fred doted on Anna Marie, but would scold and beat the two-year-old Charmaine whenever he got the opportunity. According to John, it once witnessed Charmaine asking Fred for some ice cream, but instead of giving her some, Fred inexplicably slapped the little girl. Quote, Any ordinary man would have given the child some ice cream, but instead he smashed her around the head with his hand. He was a violent and sadistic bastard who enjoyed beating up women and kids. Yeah, I'd say violent and sadistic bastard is a really good way of putting it. Um, unnamed neighbor? No, friend, John McLachlan, John McLachlan, something like that. Well said. On the 4th of November 1965, Fred and his family were living in Glasgow when he accidentally ran over a little boy with his ice cream van. The police found that Fred hadn't any intention to kill the boy, so he was let go with any charges. But the neighbors resented Fred for causing the little boy's death, so Fred decided to move back to Much Markle. It was just a total accident then? Surely there should be some sort of punishment for. I guess if it's a total accident and it's not your fault, then. Obviously, you shouldn't get into trouble, but you killed someone. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking of a story I know that I'm not going to tell um, related to that, which is really intense. <laughs> Woof! Okay. Um, 
But Rena refused to go with him at first. It's not clear why, but Fred ended up leaving Scotland in December 1965 with the two-year-old Shemaine and the five-month-old Anna Marie in tow, and they moved back in with his extended family. At the time, there were ten adults and two children sharing the three-bedroom farmhouse. In February 1966, Rena, obviously worried about how Fred was treating her babies, ended up moving back to England as she and she, Fred, and the two girls moved into a rented caravan at the Willows Caravan site in Sandhurst. Rena found work as a waitress, and Fred drove a lorry for a local abattoir. But Rena would visit Scotland on and off over the coming months, and she convinced two of her friends, Isa McNeil and Anna McFall, to go back to England with her, since they'd have a chance to find better jobs there. The two women agreed, and all three of them went back to Sandhurst, and initially Fred, Rena, Isa and Anna, and the two girls all lived together in the caravan. That sounds cramped. And also, why would you be like, yeah, yeah, come down to England to get a better job, we can live with my horribly abusive husband? <laughs> Fucking hell. But as you can imagine, it wasn't exactly a happy arrangement, and Isa and Anna often witnessed Fred beating Rena whenever he lost his temper with her. Together, the three girls called John McLaughlin, Rena's friend, and asked him to come and get them. But Anna had grown inexplicably close with Fred, and she told him about the escape plan. So when John arrived at the caravan park, Fred was waiting for him, and according to John, everyone screamed and bawled at each other. Rena ran into the bedroom, and Fred followed, and I heard him at it again, giving her a couple of slaps. How the f did she become close? So it's like, come down and live with my abusive husband. You'll actually end up rather liking Anna. Like, what the f? <laughs> oh, he's super charming, right? He's abusive and a massive piece of. Sh but didn't they say he can charm the birds off the trees? Wow, she's under his spell. That's so crazy. It's so, it's so crazy how this happens. How someone is like abusive, but so charming. You're still like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that is persuasion, isn't it? Jesus. In the end, Rena and Issa managed to get away, but Anna refused to go with them, proudly explaining that she was going to stay behind to look after the two little girls. Rena didn't want to leave her daughters behind, but Fred held a cry and Charmaine hostage and refused to let her go, telling Rena that, I'll kill you if you ever show your face again. In the end, a sobbing Rena escaped back to Scotland, leaving her babies with Fred and the 16-year-old Anna. According to Issa McNeil, Anna was infatuated with Fred. She loved playing mum to both Charmaine and Anna Marie and often took them to visit their grandparents on the farm. Anna told her mother that she and Fred had moved into a house and were doing well for themselves and they'd soon get married, but it was all lies, since Fred had no intention of divorcing Rena. Rena was jealous of the relationship between Fred and Anna, and when she came to visit her children in October 1966, she stole some of Anna's belongings out of spite and took the children with her. Fred reported the theft to the police, and Rena was arrested. A police constable called Hazel Savage was sent to collect Rena from Glasgow, and Rena spent the entire trip back to England telling PC Savage about the abusive piece of that was Fred West, and told the other woman that she was worried about the two little girls growing up under his care. Fred, on his part, fulfilled the role of remorseful, cheating husband when he testified in court on Rena's behalf, telling the judge that if Rena went to prison, their babies would have to go into care. Rena was released on probation and once again had to share the caravan with Fred and Anna for a few weeks before she found lodging somewhere else and could finally move out. But Fred still felt possessive over Rena and became angry when he learned that Rena had once again taken up sex work to support herself. Meanwhile, Anna had fallen pregnant with Fred's baby and was pressuring Fred to divorce Rena and marry her instead. Then the four of them could move into their own home and live happily ever after. Anna McFall was six months pregnant when she disappeared in July 1967. She would never be reported missing, but in June 1994, her body would be found in a cornfield outside of Much Markle, alongside the mutilated body of Rena West. That's like 25 years later. 26, 20, 28 years later. We got a gap to fill in. Mrs. West. 
1969, Rose was working at a tea and cake shop in Cheltenham and would take the bus into town. In the evening, she'd take leftover cream cakes and bread home to her family in Bishop's Cleeve, and Daisy Letts would later explain how proud they'd been of her for finally making something of herself. The 15-year-old was a beauty with her long, dark hair, olive skin, and big, dark eyes. She preferred to wear skirts and white ankle socks with lace tops, had childlike mannerisms, and came across as innocent. Of course, the precocious teenager was anything but. One evening, Rose was waiting at the bus stop in Cheltenham when she was approached by a smiling man who introduced himself as Fred West. He had curly hair, smiling blue eyes, wore a shabby suit, and walked with a limp. He had a gap between his two front teeth, and later Rose explained that his teeth were all ganky and green. At first, Rose thought he was homeless, and when he started talking to her in a thick country accent, she ignored him. But soon his jokes made her smile, and they traveled together on the bus, and he told her tales about all the adventures he'd had while he sailed around the world, and all the money he'd had, and complained that his wife left him, left him leaving him to care for his two little girls. Over the course of the next few weeks, the 28-year-old Fred West would start courting Rose by sending gifts to the cafe that she was working at and showing up after her shift to take her out for a drink at the local pub. Eventually, she'd agree to meet the six-year-old Charmaine and the five-year-old Anna Marie, and soon Rose would start sleeping with Fred, explaining in a letter to a pen pal that, quote, I started to believe that Fred was my way out of the oppression that my parents had kept me under for so long. That summer, Fred would hand his little girls over to a neighbor in the evenings, and then he and Rose would spend time together in the caravan. Rose quit her job at the cafe so that she could babysit the girls while Fred was at work, and Fred would give her money to present to her parents, helping her keep up the ruse that she was still working in Cheltenham. That September, Rose introduced Fred to her parents as her boyfriend, and her father, Bill, was disgusted by the dirty, sloppy Fred, calling him a grubby, lying little tramp, and told Rose that she wasn't allowed to see the filthy gypsy again. But Rose ignored her father's orders and started spending more time at Fred's caravan, where she filled the role of little housewife by cleaning the caravan, looking after the girls, cooking dinner for the family, and meeting Fred with a smile when he returned home from work in the evenings. According to criminologist Jane Woodrow's book, Rose West, The Making of a Monster, Rose had admitted to having been jealous of Fred's past relationships. Despite knowing that Fred was still legally married to Rena, she was determined to ensure that Fred understood that he was hers, even if it meant outdoing Rena in every way possible. Fred soon realized this and used Rena to manipulate Rose, telling her things like, Rena and I used to do this to encourage Rose to go along with his sexual fantasies, grooming the fifth. Oh, yeah, she's 15. I forgot how young she was. Grooming the 15-year-old Rose even further until she became the perfect match for him. He told Rose that Rena had been a sex worker and that he'd been a pimp and convinced Rose to take up sex work again. He encouraged her to meet the clients at the caravan and went so far as to personally advertise her services around town. He would then spy on Rose when she had clients over and he became aroused at the sight of the 15-year-old servicing much older clients in his bed. But then Bill Letts heard that his daughter was working out of Fred's caravan, and he called social services on the couple. Good, you should call the police on the couple, to be honest. The police showed up excellent at the caravan park, and Rose was taken away to a care home in Cheltenham, where, at least according to her family, she would be safe from Fred West's influence. But nothing could keep the two lovers apart. How this guy, we're in the shabby suit with a limp with the nasty teeth, is so charming the birds off the trees that he manages to get someone to do this it's crazy during the day rose would slip away to meet up with fred they wrote letters to each other and started dreaming about sharing a life 
They decided that when Rose turned 16 and she was released from the care home, she'd move in with Fred and the two girls so they could finally start working on their own family of love. Early in 1970, the now 16-year-old Rose ran away from home to be with Fred. Bill Letts called the police on the couple, and when they found out that Rose was pregnant, social services took her and Fred's daughters into custody and placed Rose in a home for young mothers. Then Bill gave his daughter an ultimatum. My father told me I could stay home as long as I had an abortion and no boyfriends, or I was told I could go off with Fred West and never see my family again. So Rose took the second option. She left home, content to never see her family again, and she and Fred moved into another rented caravan together. They applied to her Fred's daughters, released back into their care, and in May 1970 moved into a flat in Gloucester, referring to themselves as Mr. and Mrs. West. Fred worked at the Cotswolds Tar Company during the day, and at night he did repair work for their landlord, Mr. Zygmunt. Rose had officially taken on the role of little housewife and was responsible for disciplining the six-year-old Anna Marie and the seven-year-old Tremaine. They were told to call their 16-year-old stepmother, Mum. On the 17th of October 1970, Fred and Rose's first child, Heather, was born, and Rose would later explain that Heather had been a restless baby who constantly cried. Anna Marie is described as having been a timid child who loved to please but almost constantly wet the bed. Charmaine was a headstrong little girl who resented the fact that Rose was now her new mummy and often told her that, You're not my mum, you can't tell me what to do. Initially, Rose tried to win the girl's affection with dolls and kind words and to try to be their friends, but as the months wore on, she became exhausted and overwhelmed, and when Fred was arrested in November 1970 for theft, he left the 17-year-old Rose in charge of caring for their three daughters. In a book, Out of the Shadows, Anne-Marie would later explain that Rose erupted after Fred's arrest and that any semblance of kindness she had shown towards them was now a thing of the past. This is pretty f***ed up. Like, it's like, oh, she was tired and exhausted. Yeah, you've got f***ing children. What did you expect? Growing up, Rose had watched as Bill Letts abused and tortured his family to get what he wanted, and now she used his example to ensure that Charmaine and Anne-Marie did what she told them to. As soon as they came home in the afternoons, they had to do all the housework, and it wasn't up to and if it wasn't up to Rose's standards, she would beat them or slash them with anything that came to hand. Shoes, hairbrushes, broomsticks, buckle belts, knives. If that displeased her in any way, she'd tie their hands behind their backs and have them stand on the kitchen chair before starting to beat them, or she'd strip them naked, tie them to their beds, stuff their mouths with ripped sheets, and lash at their legs with a belt if they made a sound. Years later, Rose's son Stephen would say, When she got angry, she had no self-control. She would hit out with anything she could lay her hands on. If she had a sledgehammer in her hand, she'd have belted you with it. And Anna Marie would echo this, explaining that it was as if she had mental blackouts, as if she didn't know what she was doing. Afterwards, Rose would untie them and act as if nothing had happened, and at night, the eight-year-old Tremaine would try to reassure her crying sister that Mum will come and save us soon. Then, sometime between the 15th and the 24th of June 1971, Charmaine wasn't home when Anna Marie got back from school, and she didn't return home that evening either. Anna Marie didn't ask Rose where her older sister was, since she could see that Rose was in a temper, so she kept quiet. When one of Charmaine's friends came by a few days later to ask whether Charmaine could come out and play, Rose snapped at the little girl and told her she's gone to live with her mother and bloody good riddance. Oh god, she hasn't, has she? Fred was released from prison on the 24th of June, 1971, and he also didn't breathe a word of what had happened to Charmaine. Years later, the police would discover that 17-year-old Rose had killed Charmaine and had probably left her body in the coal cellar beneath their house. Fred would later admit that when he was released from prison, he'd take Charmaine's body and bury it just outside the kitchen door before moving her grave to a new location when he extended the kitchen and buried her underneath the new floor. Even though Charmaine's murder 
had probably been an accident, we don't know what Fred's initial response to his adopted daughter's death had been. We do know that soon after his release, Rose took Heather and ran back to her parents' house for a day or two before Fred convinced her to move back in with him. We also know that a concerned Rena showed up at Fred's family home just two months later and asked the Wests whether they'd seen Charmaine or knew where she was. Either way, Rena West died sometime around August 1971. She'd confronted Fred about Charmaine's disappearance and Fred had killed her next to a deserted road outside of Much Markle. It then buried a mutilated body next to Animoke Falls and went back home to Rose. On the 29th of January, 1972, Rose and West went to the registry office in Gloucester and Rose officially became the new Mrs. West. How? They didn't get divorced. How do they know she's been killed? To them, she just disappeared. He's not like, oh yeah, I killed her, so we're not together anymore. Let's get married. What the f***? Cruising for Lemons Soon after Fred was released from prison, he and Rose befriended one of their neighbors, Elizabeth Liz Agius. She was a 19-year-old young mother whose husband often worked away from home, and initially she thought that Fred and his young fiancé seemed like such a nice couple. They asked whether Liz would be willing to babysit the seven-year-old Anna Marie and baby Heather for them, and Liz agreed. When they came home long after midnight, Liz asked them whether they'd had fun, and Fred jokingly told her that they'd been driving around for hours looking for young girls, virgins and runaways, to put on the game. Oh my god. It's like, ah ha, ha ha weird joke, old man. It's weird. It's also not a joke. He called these young girls lemons and explained that it was easier to pick up girls when Rose was with him because the two of them seemed harmless. Their goal was to have one of these girls move in with them and join in on their sex games. Soon after, Fred and Rose purchased 25 Cromwell Street and they took Liz on a tour of the house. The two upper floors would later be turned into one-room flats and the family would live on the ground floor. But Fred's favorite feature of the house was the cellar, and he jokingly told Liz that he had grand plans for it. Quote, I could soundproof it and use it as my torture chamber. It's so f***ed up because it's probably what he's going to do, isn't it? In September 1972, 16-year-old Caroline Owens was on her way home when the car pulled up beside her. She relaxed when she saw Rose in the car and was released, li- relieved when Rose explained that they could give her a lift home. They chatted on the way to Caroline's parents' home, and at the end of the drive, Caroline told the Wests that she was looking for a job. Fred and Rose smiled at Caroline and told her that we need a nanny to look after our daughters. The next day, they showed up at Caroline's parents' home with Heather and baby May in tow and made their offer to Caroline and her parents, offering to pay her £8 a week to look after their three daughters. Caroline's parents were skeptical at first, but agreed, and the next day, Caroline moved into 25 Cromwell Street. Later, Caroline would explain that life at 25 Cromwell Street was nothing like she'd ever seen. The Wests lived on the ground floor, and the family would eat dinner and watch TV like any normal family, but the top floor of the house was a different story. There were wild parties, sex orgies, the tenants openly used drugs, and Fred and Rose would often join in the party alongside their tenants hosting sex parties of their own. Caroline herself joined in on the parties and used to bring her boyfriend along as well. Caroline shared a room with Anna Marie and soon realized that the nine-year-old was frightened of her parents. It didn't take her long to realize that the 18-year-old Rose was doing sex work out of her spare bedroom on the ground floor, and before long, Rose started trying to convince Caroline to join in with their sex games and turn their twosome into a threesome. When she refused, Fred threatened to tell her parents and that she'd joined in on the orgies that she hosted and told her that they won't want anything to do with you anymore, will they? During this confrontation, Caroline started crying and Rose West was left to comfort her. According to Caroline, Rose had told her, Oh, go on, Car. You'll enjoy it. Give it a go. But as soon as Rose left the room, Caroline grabbed her things and ran away from 25 Cromwell Street. 
But the Wests weren't willing to let her go that easily. According to Fred, Rose wanted to get Caroline and satisfy her urges with her. So the two of them came up with a plan to kidnap Caroline. On the 6th of December 1972, Caroline had been on her way back home after visiting her boyfriend when a familiar car pulled up alongside her. Rose got out of the car and told Caroline that they'd missed her and they were sorry that she'd left and they'd only been messing around with her that night. Once again, they offered her a lift back home and Caroline agreed and got into the back of the car, having convinced herself that Fred and Rose were mostly harmless. Oh my God. No, don't do that. Why? Rose joined Caroline in the back seat and soon after the car had started moving, started stroking up and down on Caroline's legs. Caroline pushed her away, but Fred encouraged Rose from the front seat and Rose continued to molest Caroline, who struggled to fight her off. Eventually, Fred pulled over at a secluded spot and punched Caroline until she lost consciousness. Together, they tied her up, covered her mouth with brown packing tape and took her back to 25 Cromwell Street. There, they offered her tea and asked her whether she'd be willing to work for them again since Rose was once again pregnant. What the f*** are you thinking? You just beat her unconscious and kidnapped her. You want a job? What the f***? But when Caroline refused, they stuffed her mouth with cotton wool and started assaulting her, telling her that it was for her own good. Afterwards, Rose calmly washed the blood away from Caroline's body, and Caroline would explain that Rose was a sadistic, demonic, sex-crazed beast the one minute and a Gloucester housewife the next. The next morning, Fred would assault Caroline on his own and tell her that Rose had insisted they take her because when Rose is pregnant, she gets these lesbian urges and she wanted you. Then Fred told Caroline that if she agreed to stay with them and didn't make a sound and tell, didn't tell Rose that he had assaulted her, he'd let her go. Terrified, Caroline agreed and Fred untied her and left the room to tell Rose the happy news. For the rest of the day, the couple acted like nothing had happened and they were simply happy to have Caroline back. Caroline helped Rose clean the house, vacuum the living room, and Rose even took Caroline with her and the kids when they visited the local laundrette. I really f***ing hope that Caroline's just playing along and then there's a moment where she's like, Police officer, over here, please, help me, help me. And that is when Caroline seized her charms, ran away, and told her mother what had happened to her. Excellent. Good. Good. You're so stupid, the people who are like, Oh yeah, no, she trusts us. She trusts us. She's basically forgotten that we beat her unconscious and kidnapped her. Come on! That afternoon, the police showed up at 25 Cromwell Street and confronted Rose with Caroline's story. Rose, dressed in a long floral dress and playing the part of irate housewife, reportedly told them, Don't be so f***ing daft. What do you think I am? When they asked to search the car in the house, she agreed. Obviously, she didn't know enough about police procedures to ask them whether they had a warrant. Um, also, however, I believe if she's... She doesn't seem like smart enough as a criminal to, to do this. But if you've cleared up and make sure that there's nothing dodgy around, then you'll be like, of course, have a look. And they'll find nothing and it will reinforce your word fairly strongly. Whereas if you're like being warrant, they're going to be like, okay, we're going to come back with a warrant. We're going to search extra thorough. In the back of the car, the police found a button that had been ripped from Caroline's trousers. Well, okay, if, the, if you, <laughs> you haven't cleared up your crime scenes, then obviously you need to be like, warrant, 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 warrant. And inside the house, they found the tape that had been used to silence Caroline. Fred and Rose were both arrested that same day for the sexual attack, assault, indecent assault, and actual bodily harm that they'd committed against the 16-year-old Caroline Owens. On the 12th of January, 1973, the couple appeared in the Gloucester Magistrates' Court. Caroline refused to testify in court, and the prosecution argued that she had shown passive co cooperation because she hadn't fled the house as soon as Fred had untied her the morning after her attack. Rose insisted that they hadn't intended to hurt Caroline, that she had just been a willing participant 
participant in their sex games and that they'd stopped at their sex game as soon as Catherine had asked them to. Rose also claimed that she was a lesbian and was planning on receiving psychiatric help to cure her, quote, lesbian ways. When the court asked Fred why he continued his sexual assault on Caroline after it became clear she wasn't willing to continue, Fred simply said that, I don't know why I did it, Your Honor, sir. It just happens. The court allegedly considered Fred and Rose to be harmless, bro. If anyone's like, why did you commit sexual assault? And I just, I just felt like it. Harmless, harmless. He's harmless. He's, he's a good guy. Look at him. He charms the birds off the trees. He's a good guy. He's a good. He doesn't know why he's a molester. He's just fine. He doesn't know. He's good. <laughs> what the? F- uh, and the attack on Caroline simply be a misunderstanding. I don't know, Your Honor. It's just a misunderstanding. I molested an underage guy. So it's a big, big whoopsie. It's fine, Your Honor. Come on, come on, come on. Come on, come down off that tree, you little bird. Come on. The couple were charged with indecent assault and causing actual bodily harm and were each fined £50. After paying the fines, they were free to go, and they'd commit their first murder together just two months later. The House of Horrors After Fred and Rose were arrested in February 1994, number 25 Cromwell Street became known in the British media as the House of Horrors. But for the West children, this had been long true before the bodies of Fred and Rose's victims were discovered. All nine of the West children were raised to follow the same rules that Rose and her siblings had to follow as children. They weren't allowed to play outside, they weren't allowed to have friends over unless either Rose or Fred were there to supervise, and they were responsible for doing the majority of the housework. If their chores weren't done to Rose's satisfaction, she'd beat them with whatever was nearby, kick their ankles, and knees until they fell to the floor and curled up on the ground, and once repeatedly swiped a knife of her daughter May for accidentally breaking a dish, leaving the girl with bloody, shallow cuts on her chest. Their youngest son, Barry, would later explain that Rose would lovingly tuck them up at night, and the next morning, quote, we'd wake up to her kicking us in our beds. She'd be shouting, wake up, you little There'd be no reason for it. We were terrified. But Fred and Rose's crimes against their children were far worse than just being horrific parents. Shemaine had been their first known victim. Long before Rose came into the picture, Fred had been openly molesting Shemaine, seeing it as his right to, quote, break her in. After she disappeared and they'd moved into 25 Cromwell Street, Fred's attention turned to the eight-year-old Anna Marie. In her book, Out of the Shadows, Anna Marie explained that she'd likely been the first person that Fred and Rose had tortured together in the converted basement of 25 Cromwell Street. I'm not going to explain the assault in detail. Reading about it was horrifying enough, but Anna Marie was only eight years old when they tied her to a mattress in the basement and started their attack on her. They tortured her for over two hours, and afterwards, Anna Marie was bleeding and found it difficult to walk. In a rare show of compassion, the 18-year-old Rose apologized to her stepdaughter, helped her clean herself up, and told her, I'm sorry. Everybody does it to every girl. It's a father's job. Don't worry about it, and don't say anything to anybody. It's something everybody does but they don't talk about it. Hmm. This is tough. This is a this is a tough episode. I wish that I could say they never touched her again, but I can't. Caroline Owens had noticed that Anna Marie was terrified of her parents, but even she never knew the full scope of their abuse, most of which was orchestrated and carried out by Rose while Fred was at work. And by the time Anna Marie was 12, Rose was telling her male clients that Anna Marie was 16 and left the girl alone with them. When Anna Marie was 15, one of her teachers told social services that they'd noticed dark bruises on the young girl's body and they'd showed up at 25 Cromwell Street. Of course, Rose and Anna Marie both denied that anything was wrong. The house was clean, the children were all fed, clothed, and looked generally well looked after. So social services left, and Anna Marie was beaten again for bringing attention to the family. That night, Anna Marie ran away, and with her gone, Fred turned his attention to Rose's eldest daughter, nine-year-old Heather. 
Growing up, Heather hadn't been treated any differently from Anna Marie. She'd had to go straight home after school and wasn't allowed to have any friends over. And when she told her mother that Fred was molesting her, Rose laughed it off, telling Heather that her father was simply messing around. As she got older, Heather became more rebellious. Rose would punish her, and Heather would go to school with her body covered in bruises. One of her school friends noticed the bruises, and Heather confided in her, telling her of the physical and sexual abuse that she'd suffered at home. But when the rumors about what were going on at 25 Cromwell Street reached Rose and Fred, Heather was punished again. And from that moment on, she wasn't allowed to speak to anyone without one of her parents being present. In 1987, the 16-year-old Heather left school and was hoping to find a job that would enable her to get away from 25 Cromwell Street. Anna Maria was trying to help her, but the two sisters couldn't make any plans, with either Fred or Rose constantly listening in on their conversations. Then Heather disappeared on the 19th of June 1987. It's not clear exactly what happened to her. Fred claimed that he'd strangled Heather because she'd been giving him attitude. Barry West would later say that he'd seen Rose repeatedly kick Heather against the head until she stopped moving. Rose simply claimed ignorance. Either way, Fred cut up his daughter's body and buried her in the backyard. Later, two of his sons would help him build a stone patio over their sister's grave. After the disappearance, a crying Rose told her children that Heather was now working at a holiday camp. She and Fred trolled her brother Graham that Heather had run away, claiming that she's disappeared. She's a lesbian. That's it. Closed. I don't want you coming round in future if you do mention Heather. Photos of her were removed from the house, and Heather's brothers and sisters were forbidden from ever mentioning her name. But then Heather started calling the house. The phone would ring, and would, Rose would answer it saying, Hi Heather, it's your mum. She would then have imaginary conversations with the person on the other end that always ended in an argument. According to Stephen, their eldest son, after her arrest, Rose told him that Fred had arranged these phone calls to keep the younger children from asking where Heather was. To keep up the fantasy that Heather was still alive, Fred would also come home and tell his family that had seen Heather that day, that she seemed to be well and was now a sex worker, but she was still a lesbian and not interested in coming home. And all the while, he'd dokingly tell the children that if you don't behave, you'll end up under the patio like Heather. With Heather gone, Fred and Rose had turned their attention to one of their younger daughters. May had managed to fight her father off, but her 12-year-old sister Louise couldn't. One night, she walked into the bedroom that she shared with her sisters and cried out, when she told them that her father had assaulted her. Afterwards, she wasn't able to go to school for a week. Tara West, one of her older sisters, told one of her friends about the attack on her younger sister. The friend told a police officer, and on the 6th of August 1992, four police officers showed up at the doorstep of 25 Cromwell Street with a search warrant in hand. They confiscated almost a hundred pornographic videos, various sex toys, whips, and leather suits that they'd found in Red Fred and Rose's sex room. They also found pornographic children of at least two of the West children, and Rose and Fred were arrested on the spot for the assault of the 12-year-old Louise. Finally. And how about we send them to prison forever? Because unfortunately, there's no death penalty in 1992. And I truly mean that. Unfortunately. Karma. Of course, that wasn't the end of it. The five youngest West children were taken into care, and Rose and Fred weren't allowed to contact their children. But Rose called Anna Marie and told her, If you think anything of me or your dad, you'll keep your mouth shut. Anna Marie had two daughters of her own at this point and was scared that her parents would hurt her baby, so she refused to testify against them in court. Yo, you testify. They are going away forever. They, You don't have to worry. They will go away for f***ing ever. The same went for Louise and three of the other West children who had been supposed to act as witnesses against their parents. The case against Rose and Fred fell flat. They were free to go. But 
Detective Constable Hazel Savage had been contacting the other West children to find out if they'd be willing to talk about the abuse of their younger siblings. If her name sounds familiar, that's because DC Hazel Savage was the very same police constable who escorted Rena West back to England in 1966. DC Savage had drawn up a detailed family tree of the expansive West family to keep track of who was where when, and she realized that Heather had disappeared off the face of the earth. Then one of the youngest West children told their social worker about how Fred would joke that it buried Heather underneath the patio. The social worker told DC Savage, and then she ran a scan on Heather's national insurance number, which is similar to a social security number or ID number, although Simon would better be able to explain it. Yeah, it's like a government ID thing. I think it's for like your pension and so like when you get a job, you give them this number and then they keep track of how much you work and then your pension and stuff, I think. <laughs> I guess so. Anyway, DC Savage wouldn't, couldn't prove that Heather had, at any point in her life, made any contributions to or claims against the national insurance. Bingo. There you go. Yeah, you make contributions and then you make claims, I think. Maybe it's also for, like, if you're unemployed. I'm not sure. I've never made any claims on national insurance. I'm pretty sure I don't have national insurance anymore, not living in the UK. <laughs> And now we're getting to my favorite part of the story. Because she'd met Rena, DC Savage had been aware of Fred West's darker side for years. Back in 1996, uh, 1966, sorry, Rena had told the then constable that Fred was violent and quite possibly mad. Convinced that Fred had murdered Heather and then buried her underneath the patio, DC Savage tried to locate Rena West and found that she had gone missing while she was looking for her missing daughter, Charmaine, back in August 1971. DC Savage also stumbled across the missing persons report for Anna McFall, and she walked up to the lead detective on the case and insisted that they had to dig up the back garden of 25 Cromwell Street. In Memoriam On the 24th of February 1994, D.C. Savage and a team of police officers started digging up the sections of the backyard, looking for any signs that Heather had been buried there. In an effort to protect Rose, Fred handed himself over to the police the next day and admitted to the murder of Heather West. He told the police where to dig, and shortly after they found Heather's bones, they found another thigh bone, and then another, and then another, uncovering nine bodies in total. Fred would identify most of them, but the forensic pathologists on the case would use dental records to confirm the identities of the others. Fred and Rose's first murder victim had been 19-year-old Linda Goff, who'd lived in one of the rooms that the Wests had rented out. She used to babysit the youngest West children before she disappeared in April 1973. Then there was the 15-year-old Carol Ann Cooper, who'd been offered a lift by Fred and Rose on the 10th of November 1973 and never returned home. Lucy Partington was 21 when she disappeared on the 27th of December 1973. In April 1974, 21-year-old Theresa Siegenthaler was hitchhiking from London to Hollyhead when she got into Fred's car. Shirley Hubbard was a 15-year-old schoolgirl who had been waiting at a bus stop when she went missing in November 1974. The 18-year-old, 20 Mart had briefly lived at 25 Cromwell Street and was reported missing on the 12th of April 1975 after she failed to show up at a friend's house that evening. The 18-year-old Shirley Robinson had been living with the couple for over a year. She had been their sex partner and was eight months pregnant with Fred's baby uh, when a jealous, equally pregnant Rose insisted that the girl had to go. She was murdered on the 10th of May 1977 and her unborn son was buried next to her. Fred insisted that Rose had murdered Shirley on her own. Alison Chambers was the last person who was dragged into the cellar underneath 25 Cromwell Street. She'd been the couple's nanny for just a few days and had written to her parents to tell them that she was living with a very homely family. She died in August 1978. It's amazing that there's so many people disappearing around these people, tenants, and no one is picking up on this. It's mental. 
In response, a broken and depressed Fred told the police everything and implicated Rose in all of the murders that they committed in the cellar of 25 Cromwell Street. He explained that some of the women were killed once Fred and Rose were done with them. Fred claimed that at least two of the deaths were accidental and that pleasure had simply turned into disaster. Fred told the police that the others were some of Rose's mistakes. He said that while he was at work, she'd mutilated them to such an extent that he had to put them out of their misery when he got home. All of the bodies were missing their finger bones. And Fred told the police that they'd cut the fingers off to keep the police from using fingerprints to identify their victims. The missing finger bones were never recovered. On the 1st of January 1995, Fred wrote a final letter to Rose before he hung himself in his cell. In it, he reminded Rose of the promises she'd made to him and that he expected her to fulfill her side of the bargain and come to him. She never did. Judgment Day Initially, the police thought that Fred had murdered Charmaine, but his arrest records showed that he'd been in prison when she died. The police then pegged Rose as a murderer. Rose was formally charged with the murder of Charmaine West in January 1995, and in February 1995, she pled not guilty to ten murder charges and two counts of indecent assault, claiming that she had no idea that Fred had tortured and killed those girls and she'd simply been one of his victims as well. Rose went on trial on the 3rd of October 1995 at Winchester Crown Court. Queen's counsel Brian Leverson told the court that Fred and Rose had been sex-obsessed sadistic murderers and that their victims were just sex toys to them their last moments on earth were as objects of the sexual depravity of this woman and her husband each victim was dumped without decency or respect into a different hole some three feet below the ground in the garden in the cellar or underneath the bathroom he further went on to explain that the crown wasn't suggesting that rose had committed all ten of the murders on her own but that she and fred are both to blame for nine of the ten murders that she was accused of to quote at the core of this case is the relationship between frederick and rosemary west what they knew about each other what they did together what they did to others and how far each was prepared to go much of what follows can be explained in the context that both were obsessed with sex for the next 31 days the court learned exactly what had been going on behind the doors of 25 cromwell street the jury was shown photographs that showed the pieces of packaging tape and rope that had been found next to the bodies indicating that they'd been bound and strangled and had their mouths taped shut when they died some of them had been decapitated all of them had been dismembered and mutilated and all of the bodies including those of shirley's baby were missing their finger bones prosecutor leverson went on to explain fred and rose's sexual appetite was a death sentence and after caroline got away and reported them to the police the couple had learned from their mistake and they would never be so trusting again caroline owens contacted the police once she heard of the murders and this time she insisted on testifying against rose caroline told the court of the assault that she'd suffered at the hands of fred and rose back in 1972 giving the court an insight into what their other victims had gone through and she made a point of explaining that rose was a willing participant in the attacks saying that during their assault on her quote she was grinning and laughing she looked evil to me caroline continued to explain how the attack had affected her life and that she regrets not standing up in court and pressing ahead with the sexual assault charges against the wests quote at the time i was told by police that i would be cross-examined in the witness box and that it would be hard to handle i felt i could not cope with this when i became aware of the woman that had been murdered and the alleged involvement of fred and rose west in 1994 i felt anger frustration guilt i felt that if i had gone to court on my case i could have stopped it yeah you don't um you're a victim in this and while obviously it would have been good it's not you can't be blamed like this is the thing it's like something is so traumatic then you have to go to court and relive that whole thing 
You have to go through all of the trauma again. And you have to sit there while someone tells you that you didn't go through all of that trauma and it didn't happen. And the person who did these things to you is innocent. I can see why you wouldn't want to do it, of course. The mother of Lindsay Goff also testified in court against Rose and explained that she had gone looking for her daughter, knowing that Linda had lived at 25 Cromwell Street at the time. Rose had opened the door, wearing Linda's slippers, and later Mrs. Goff would realize that some of Linda's clothes were hanging on the washing line outside. When Mrs. Goff asked Rose where her daughter was, Rose denied ever having met Linda. And when Mrs. Goff told Rose that the slippers she was wearing belonged to Linda, Rose told her that Linda had gone to Western Supermare, a seaside town near Gloucester. Mrs. Goff had believed her and never suspected that the young, dark-haired woman had murdered her daughter. Some of the witnesses included members of Rose's family, their former lodgers, neighbors, and sexual partners. A schoolgirl that assaulted when she was just 14 testified as well, and Anna Marie told the court how they'd taken her down into the cellar when she was eight and assaulted her. Then it was the defense's turn to plead their case, and Rose's lawyer, Richard Ferguson, got up and told the court that, I tell you now, as loudly and as clearly as I can, that Rosemary West is not guilty. He continued to explain that just because she loved sex, was bisexual, and worked as a sex worker, it didn't mean that she was a murderer and that Fred had committed the murders on his own. Rose couldn't be expected to have known what her husband did because 25 Cromwell Street was not your typical suburban household with 2.4 children. He would go on to repeat Rose's claims that Fred had encouraged her to do sex work so that he was free to abuse his victims down in the cellar without her knowledge, and that in many ways she had been his victim as well. Then Rose got up on the stand, and according to journalist Howard Sounds, she told the court about her childhood and how she had met Fred, saying that, quote, He promised me the world. He promised me everything. Because I was so young, I fell for his lies. He promised to care for me and love me, and I fell for it. When she was asked about the allegations of child abuse that had been brought in against her, Rose would deny it and try to explain her behavior towards her children by saying that when Heather was a baby, she would sleep all day and be awake all night. And the Shemaine was a problem child. She was misbehaving, not eating, running away, and just generally disagreeing with everything I said or did. Um, f you. These are your children. Rose jokingly told the court that she was always pregnant, that Fred was domineering, and that she always had to do what he wanted or had beat her, and that she and Fred led separate lives because he often locked himself in the cellar, keeping himself busy with his DIY work. She claimed that Fred had manipulated her into seducing Caroline, and that when he assaulted Caroline, I asked him what the hell he thought he was doing. When Rose's defense asked whether she recognized any of the bodies that had been found at 25 Cromwell Street, she denied it and then went on to make jokes about their victims' appearances. She'd contradict herself over and over, saying that she'd never met a specific victim, but then remembering a small detail about their lives a few minutes later. Making you look real guilty there. Let's go to prison forever. Or maybe just hang yourself in your cell. That'd be grand. Why don't you do that? And when the court asked about Heather's murder, Rose told the court that when she'd heard that Fred had murdered Heather, quote, I hated him. I didn't see the man I had known all those years. He was just a walking figure of evil. I saw him. It might seem daft, but I saw him with horns and complete with a satanic grin. He never looked sorry for what he did or anything. He just used to grin like it was some joke. When Prosecutor Levison began his cross-examination of Rose, he asked her whether she still insists that she hadn't known about the murders taking place in the cellar of her house. She told him that she didn't. Levison then asked her if she was the one who washed Fred's clothes, and she admitted that she was. He asked her if she was the one who cleaned the cellar, and she admitted that she was usually the one to clean it. He then asked her how she'd missed the fact that Fred's hands and arms would be covered in blood after he'd mutilated the bodies, how she'd missed the fact that his clothes would have been covered in blood, and how she'd missed the bloodstains in the cellar from where it cut up the bodies. 
Rose denied having any part in the murders and denied having abused her children, and Levison accused her of trying to pin all of the blame on Fred. After spending three days on the stand, Rose broke down and told the court that, quote, It's all very well to someone to say that I did this or did that because I'm the one now in the spotlight. Fred West is dead, and I've got to take responsibility for what he's done. No, you don't. And you're, you're absolutely trying not to. Like, the fact that he killed himself is a gift for you because it allows you to blame everything on him without him being there to defend himself. But on the 3rd of November 1995, 145 tapes would be presented to the court. All of them were from interviews that Fred had had with the police. The first four tapes were recorded during the police's initial interviews with Fred, and on them, Fred is insistent that Rose hadn't been aware of the murders. He also claimed that he'd killed Heather after she had threatened to kill her younger siblings with acid, but in another interview, he claimed that Heather was still alive and living with a drug cartel. Sounds believable. But after Rose had started ignoring her husband after their initial trial, Fred became depressed and angry and decided to take his revenge on her. He later admitted to his solicitor that he'd been protecting Rose, that she'd been complicit in his assaults on their daughters, and that she'd once tried to murder him with a knife. He admitted that Rose enjoyed abusing children and that she had been the one to commit most of the murders. He just had to bury the bodies. Fred had been assigned an appropriate adult. Once he was arrested, an appropriate adult is assigned to make legal decisions on behalf of a prisoner who is either underage or considered to be mentally disabled, and during his incarceration, Fred had confided in her. Her name was Janet Leach, and she told the court that, quote, when he was arrested, he wanted to know whether Rose had been let out. That was important to him because they'd made a pact that he would take the blame for everything. He was upset. He just said the police were getting too close and that they'd find out that Rose was involved. In his closing argument, Mr. Levison told the court, Frederick and Rosemary West were perfect companions, and they were in it together. The jury deliberated for three days, and found that Rose West was guilty of all ten counts of murder that had been brought against her. Mr. Justice Mantle addressed the court and said that, quote, Rosemary Pauline West, each of the ten counts of murder with which you have been unanimously convicted by the jury. The sentence is one of life imprisonment. If attention is paid to what I think, you will never be released. Good. Good. Never. Rare in Britain. Rare. Lock her up forever. Throw away the f key. Let her die in jail where she f belongs. The Aftermath I wish I could say that the tragic story of the West children ended after their parents were arrested. We always make a point of remembering the victim. But Fred and Rose's children had also suffered at the hands of their abusive parents. And long after Rose went to prison, her children still felt the effects of their time in that house of horrors. Anna Marie West would try to take her life on multiple occasions, and during her stepmother's murder trial, she'd tell the court that she wished she was dead. The older West children have all spoken about the horrific childhood, and one of Rose's daughters, Tara, told the Sunday Mirror that, quote, I close my front door and lock out the world. I don't open the front door to anybody, and I don't let children out to play. I'm probably overprotective, but I fear them being taken by somebody like Dad. If the children go to a party, I go. If they go out to play, I go. I know what evil is out there. I lived with it for many years. The then 12-year-old Louise blamed herself for the fact that her family had fallen apart and that she and her siblings had to go into care. All of them got new identities to protect them from their parents' legacy, and in 2006, Rose cut off all ties with her children, saying that I was never a parent then and could never be now. <laughs> They, you cut off contact with your children. They, they were in contact with you. F Rose. At least one of her children got into trouble for improper contact with a minor, and one of them took his own life. But the rest of them seemed to have lived their lives as best they could, 
And Rose, oh well, she now lives in her own little bubble, and according to Jane Woodrow, spends her days knitting, cleaning, and drinking tea from a china set. You could argue that, after a lifetime of abuse, it's the closest she'll come to leading a normal life. She has friends, hosted music nights in her cell, writes letters to her family and pen pals, attends a book club, knits like any other granny, and allegedly plans to write a cookbook. Of course, her friends were people like Myra Hindley and Tracy Connell, but to be fair, her choices were limited in the category A prison she used to live in. These days, she's in H.M. Newhall prison and claims that she's living a stress-free life since her new cellmates aren't keen on beating the 69-year-old Rose with pools. Rose will undoubtedly die in prison, and yet I can't help but feel that she got off lightly. But I take solace in the fact that her place in hell is ready and waiting for her. I don't, because I don't believe in hell. I just believe it's nothing after you die, which is kind of sad, because she deserves to go to hell. Wow. What a horrible episode. Dismembered Appendices According to journalist Howard Sounds, Fred is suspected of killing at least four girls during his time in Scotland, and there's a possibility that he also buried them in his backyard. He had an allotment of land in his backyard that he kept bare and often bragged to his neighbors, like keeping it for something special. We'll never know if he did bury any bodies there, as that piece of land now lies directly underneath Junction 22 of the M8 motorway. Number 2. Rose's father, Bill Letts, continued his inappropriate relationship with his daughter until his death in May 1979. He still regularly slept with Rose and had reportedly both abused Anna Marie and Heather. When her girls complained that Grandpa Bill was abusing them, Rose shrugged it off and scolded them for leading him on. Oh my god. Prison forever. Prison forever. I'm so glad she's in prison for f***ing ever. Number three, Rose and Myra Hindley from the Moores murders grew up close in pri- grew close in prison, reportedly in a relationship before prison politics drove them apart. Oh my God! Number four, multiple people who've been involved in the trial proceedings, like the jury and Rose's lawyer, had to receive counselling after the trial. Jesus Christ! I feel like I need counselling after beating this bloody episode, to be honest. Number five, Janet Leach suffered a stroke while providing evidence in court, and the trial was postponed for a week until she was well enough to continue her testimony, returning to court in a wheelchair. Number six, Detective Hazel Savage was command- commended for her work on the West investigation and for insisting that they dig up the backyard at 25 Cromwell Street. As a reward, she received an MBE, most excellent order of the British Empire, for her service to the Crown. Good. That's nice. Excellent work. Yeah, well done. Anyway, this has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. I hope you found it. <sighs> it was horrific. I, I, I hope you found it. I hope you found it horrific. You did find it horrific. It was horrible. I'm going to go and have a little sit down. Thanks for watching. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.